Welcome everyone to uh, Unsafe Space Book Club. Today we're doing Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein. And let me see if I can unmute everyone and make this make this work. So here we go. Uh, I think everyone can unmute themselves at this point. Carrie, are you there? Can you unmute yourself? There's Thomas. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Carter. There's Carrie. All right. So we're here. Oh, I see a lot of people uh, we've had before. Cheeky Mare, Tamara, Manny, appropriate name, <laughs> Allison. Oh, Nick Hemingway is here. I got to meet Nick in person. Uh, Lindsay's here. I got to meet Lindsay in person. Oh, cool. Uh, Harry, I see a lot of people Matt, that are new to book Deb. It's a lot of new people. Alex, yeah. uh, Sagita. And Keith, the hack guy. Is that everyone? Ben? Harry? Okay. Yeah. There's, <laughs> this is a big I, group. I count 17 right now. Actually, plus Zach wow. is coming in in a moment. So this is the largest Hollywood squares we're ever going to play. That's right. <laughs> so uh, let's jump in with Carrie. Did you read it? I did. <laughs> hey, uh, let's just say uh, first impressions. I really enjoyed this. The uh, the language is not, wasn't that hard to get. You know, he just drops a lot of the uh, articles, right? Articles, yeah. Um, and I also understand understood almost immediately why this is one of your favorite books, <laughs> <laughs> and it even references some of your other favorite books. I didn't even realize that until I reread it because it's been like probably twenty years uh, yeah. since I read this book. Um, but yeah, I was reading it, going, "Oh yeah, no wonder I like this book. I, I forgot." Um, it's a fun, easy read. I think it's it's um, fun. You find yourself, I think, pretty quickly. Uh, coming to identify with a computer and yes. humanizing a computer and yeah. appreciating his, his uh, sense of humor. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it. What are other first impressions of this one? Who wants to go? I'll go. <clears throat> I, I enjoy it. I've, this is about like my ninth time through the book. <laughs> so, I, I, I discovered Heinlein in grade school, and I have been reading them ever since. But I think the uh, if you look at the book in the in the context of the time it was written, which is in the early '60s, right after the moon landing, <clears throat> you got to take and, and admire his predictive ability as far as how people will go. I don't think he ever anticipated it would shut down Facebook. Right now. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I, in fact, someone someone asked by by email if um, the fact that uh, the predictions were not accurate, like some of them just weren't accurate. Um, a lot of them weren't accurate. Does it make it harder to read? And I was thinking because my daughter's in the middle of reading iRobot and she read uh, 2001 recently. And I'm, you know, I read, I just read this. I think I can't think of a science fiction book that actually has had accurate predictions. So for me, it doesn't bother me at all. I'm just like, oh yeah, well, they, this is where they thought they would be. Like, we're not there. Um, you know, they missed things like the internet and thought would be 
living in tunnels on the moon. Like, it doesn't bother me. Does it bother anyone else? Does it make it hard to read? Well, well, not me, but it certainly takes in and uh, brings to mind the meme from Back to the Future. Where is my flying car by now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of 1984 in that even though the predictions aren't the same, in an exact the same fashion, the manner in which human nature is portrayed is still happening. It's just happening in slightly different ways and different uh, a different time with, you know, some different tools. So yep. you know they're not always going to know exactly what the technology is are going to is going to bring. But I, I think as long as you look at human nature and it's a good predictor of it, then that's what counts. Um, and it was funny that Carrie says she understood why you love this book. Because I came out of it thinking, this feels like an Ayn Rand book, except it's science fiction. And the professor is the guy who is the voice of reason within um, Fountainhead or within um, Atlas Shrugged. It does a little bit feel like that, although I think she would push back on a lot of it. <clears throat> um, she was, I think, much stricter in her view of how things should be. One thing that yeah. struck me about the book this time that I didn't have uh, a comparison... It make it makes sense that I didn't see this earlier because it's a new phenomenon. I viewed the loonies as kind of Trump's base in their attitudes. Like it was the they they didn't have education. They're just kind of regular people doing their thing, uh, making their lives, want you know, wanting to be left alone. And I almost felt like, oh, this is you can see you can almost see the intellectuals hating them and looking down on them uh, in a very similar way as uh, a lot of Trump's base who just wants to, you know, work at the steel mill and or drive trucks or do a lot of blue collar labor and be left alone and be relatively free. Um, yeah, the proletariat in 1984. Yeah, yeah. Where there's not, you know, even their language is, is, is not considered uh, proper educated. English. Or, yeah, proper, it's not yeah. proper English. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, I thought that was interesting. Any other thoughts from people? Any general thoughts? One thing I'm yeah. going to say, it takes place in like 2076, so we can't say whether he predicted the future right yet. Well, he does out. reference stuff that happens in the 90s. Uh, yeah, but so. uh, I just thought <laughs> I'd throw that out. And I, yeah, and I see the reference like to the, the, the professor. I kind of thought of the professor as Ben Franklin. He's like mm. the old guy in the revolution. Yeah, that makes he certainly sense. mentions, you know, he certainly references early American history and the founding fathers and obviously Thomas Jefferson and stuff a lot. So, yeah. That makes sense. So if I was going to pick somebody, I'd be the comparative professor to it'd be Thomas Jefferson, because obviously he admired Thomas Jefferson so much. And I think the one line he that, that comes to mind is when he says that Thomas Jefferson almost slipped over his non-government but he got caught at it <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah no i know what you mean i saw i saw aspects of it i kind of picked ben franklin because you know ben franklin in 76 was really old like when they wrote the constitution he had to be helped into the chambers so he used that aspect he threw in a bunch of dates and i like looked up some i was just curious like he throws out you know may 13th 2075 you know like that's when the uh, 
that's when it starts and it starts with a tax, right? They, they put a tax on food. Um, I think he's talking about like the stamp act, you know, or something he's, he's oh, like, man. and he's using, and I looked up several of them. Like he has July 4th, 2076 in there as an important date that they celebrate. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And actually they did, he did the same thing that, uh, we did with the declaration of independence where it happened on the second, but we celebrated on the fourth. He, he mirrored that exact timeline, uh, on the moon. Right. It happened on the and, second, but they it wouldn't be ratified or whatever till the fourth. And for the same reason, because there yes. was a relationship between the French Independence Day and we did it. So it was a, a diplomatic thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The July 4th is the day that the broad the hundred broadsides were printed. Right. July 2nd is actually the Independence Day. Right. Right. You know something I something else I noticed by the way, uh, which again I didn't notice last time, but struck me. So I'm gonna read it. I I mean he wrote this book in 1966, and I'm just gonna read this because I, I I was fascinated because I don't think I don't think any anyone really predicted this in 1966. He's talking about uh, this is. Um, this he's talking about uh, North America here, so we can assume the U.S. Right? He says, "Is mixed up place another way? They care about skin color by making point of how they don't care. First trip, I was always too light or dark, and somehow blamed either way, or was always being expected to take stand on things I have no opinions on. Bog knows I don't know what genes I have. So there was this like prediction that oh, we're going to be in this society where they." assume that your skin color is correlated to your opinion somehow and it's very important and they pretend not to care by caring a lot about what your skin color is um i don't i don't think that was obvious in 1966 does anyone else it, it made me feel like myself being mixed that i have whatever i don't know what my genes are well you know i just right. got something to say you know whatever <laughs> yeah yeah uh, any other, I know there were a couple people who started to talk a second ago with their general takeaway or their general opinion on the book. I, well, this the was my, dialect, go ahead. This was my first uh, Heinlein. I love sci-fi and I've never, I've like, he's always been on my to be read list, but, and I read this at the same time as the Cold Millions, which just came out. And they're both sort of about like the workers rising up and everything. And I gotta say, like, I read a lot of contemporary, like, new novels, and this was so much better. <laughs> They're talking about the cold millions, and, and they do this every year about, like, 50 books. They're like, this is the best book ever. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> and, and, like, you go back to something like one of these big names, like Heinlein, and you see that, no, there's so much, he's doing so much thematically, he's doing so much in the genre, and he's doing so much with the language. And he's like, so many of his scenes perform multiple functions as well. And it's like, this is so much better than so many things and I, that I've read and recently. And I, I, I just loved it because it's, you know, refreshing to see actual good writing for yeah. <laughs> compared to what's going on now. 
Why, why do we think that is? I, I've noticed that with books outside of science fiction, and I don't read science fiction much, so and I don't have your experience, Alex, but I wonder why that is that we see such a difference with writing today comparatively. I just read Frederick Douglass's, um, I forget what it's called, his narrative, and I'm thinking this guy grew up in slavery. He had to escape, didn't get out till the second time, was beat, learned to write, write using chalk. His words are like poetry. And I'm thinking, how is it that someone so long ago with that background can write like that? And today, when to Alex's point, a lot of the stuff we're reading um, is so boring in its artistry. And, you know, I, I didn't know that it transferred to uh, other genres, but I think that's really interesting. And it makes me think what it is that we're doing that has affected writing this way. One theory is uh, Frederick Douglass didn't go to government schools. Maybe that's where they- <laughs> There you go. <laughs> I actually went to school for creative writing fiction. Mm. And I can tell you, they push theme over anything else. So, um, which always bothered me because I was like, that's only one thing. And they're, so like most people I can tell when they're writing today, they're writing to get into the classroom, into the academic realm that people will talk about the themes of their books instead of the artistry of what they're writing. So like to me, I find that genre writing today is actually better than most literature because of the fact that they're not just doing, like they might do theme or they might not in genre, but when they do theme, they're also doing uh, the language, they're also doing the plot, they're also doing the character development. They're, they're trying to fire on all cylinders and most of them after quite a while of like working on it, they can do it. And the problem is, is that the liter literature writers today are not working on those other aspects of their writing. They are only working on getting an interesting theme into the classroom. And it is incredibly frustrating because everyone talks about these award-winning books, these books that everybody thinks is so amazing, and the only thing they have for them is theme. Yeah, it. I like how this book had its own language, like that we've someone mentioned the dialect. So at first, that really threw me off because I, I thought maybe this was like a um, like a Kindle mistake or something, like like something <laughs> didn't get translated from print to digital because the book's so old. Um, but then I'm like, oh, this is uh, this is very similar to the Expanse, where there's like the the, the Belters in their culture, and so you, you can see how this book has really inspired that series. But uh, I think it's just so well fleshed out as a story world. Like there is this entire culture that's built up. You know, they call themselves Loonies, and they have this like total mishmash of languages. And uh, my wife grew up in Hawaii, and so they have uh, they speak uh, Pigeon. It's like this mishmash of languages. And whenever we go back there, she'll she'll put on her her pigeon accent and all the vocabulary. And I'm like, this is like a totally other language. She's like, well, this is what everyone speaks because it really is like a true melting pot in Hawaii. And so, you know, he, he doesn't go into a ton of detail about like the environment, like the um, this isn't like a like a Kim Stanley Robinson kind of book with just tons of scientific detail, but it's so rich in cultural detail like you feel like you're there and you know these people and so for, I, I can't believe this book was written in 66 i mean i um carter i heard about this book in 1996 my friend in high school was telling me about it 
So it's just amazing that it's really stood the test of time. Uh, can I jump in, Jack, Zach? I wanted to say to your point, you just made me think of uh, one of the one of my favorite lines in the book, which is where he he's talking about uh, Mike, the computer, has read a lot of fiction because in some ways reading fiction gives him a better sort of what you're saying, the cultural, the, in, you know, he, he may not have, this author may not have a lot of um, scientific uh, uh, prose or whatever, but he's, but he's got, he's rich in culture. And this line where he said, uh, I used to question Mike's endless reading of fiction, wondering what notions he was getting, but it turned out he got a better feeling for human life from stories than he had been able to garner from facts, which is, just really highlights, I think, why Great. some of the fiction, some of the books of fiction we've read for book club are so important, I think, for understanding human nature and these cycles that we seem to repeat in history. And I like that he included that, that the computer's like, oh, I need to read fiction. <laughs> Can I jump in? Um, it's worth noting that in uh, 1966, sci-fi was not a uh, literary uh, form at all. Um, it was suitable for small boys, really. And so, um, you know, this many years later, 50 odd years later, to be um, kind of being able to hit all of those thematic and narrative um, elements that we find so important um, today and still standing the test of time, that's that's pretty good. And whilst um, you... Um, we're saying that he doesn't have the same um, level of detail as Kim Stanley Robinson. And um, he is one of the fathers of hard sci-fi. Um, he may have got the phones wrong. They still have wires. But, um, you know, he, he got so many other things so right. I mean, his minimal approach to um, orbital mechanics and whatever is just spot on. So something that's really amazing to me, the, the way... Yeah, the way he, good grief. Am I talking? No, okay. Yeah, I hear so, you. We hear you, yeah. Uh, so the things that really took and stand the test of time is his personal interactions, his people, right? It. You look at the moon and you look at the way it was founded in his mechanics and his people had to turn out the way they did. But... For all his understanding of people, you know, Heinlein was an engineer. So, <laughs> so I mean, you don't expect that out of engineers. But yeah. he really and, and got people. <laughs> yeah, and and then uh, so some of some of the things that that are applicable today that's amazing i mean there's a line in there about how if you're going to have a revolution you got to be able to control the press you got to have the communications yep. think about what's went on in the past year you know in in the in the campaign this year and does that not just take and show how on the button he was about that yeah yeah totally there's also a there's also a point where he talks about um maybe i can find it actually um, where they talk about censorship and, uh, yeah, it's, it's the prof and he says, uh, limiting the freedom of news just a little bit is in the same category with the classic examples, a little bit pregnant. <laughs> like he basically was saying like, we can't, we can't have just a little bit of censorship. Like that's not how it works. You have to not have any, um, 
And uh, yeah, I, I find I find it fascinating that if you think about what allowed them to succeed, it wasn't um, it wasn't actually a revolution in philosophy. It wasn't a revolution in technology. It wasn't that suddenly the masses kind of organically swelled up and you know uh, the culture went a certain direction. It was that they controlled communications. That's what it was. It was they could communicate to one another and they could manipulate via propaganda uh, <laughs> society. And uh, I, I think that is super relevant to what's happening today. Yeah, I found that part really concerning, <laughs> like the whole time. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and like um, when he's controlling, when the computer's controlling um, transmissions to Earth and then they're getting filtered news, I was like, I don't know, that just, it scared me, quote unquote, because it was so close to what's going on right now. Yeah, and there's like a moral question, right? Because definitely the prof does things and supports things that he believes are immoral, but he's kind of doing this calculation of like, well, we're gonna run out of food and everyone's gonna die in seven years, or I rob some money and start a revolution. (laughs) Like, I, like, he does things that I don't think he believes are necessarily moral, but he does them because he he feels like he's between a rock and a hard place and he does what's necessary. Um, that but, reminds me of you. Yeah, a little bit, right? Because I think I, I one, one thing, I, the other thing I like about the prof is even though he mentions early on that he's actually kind of an anarchist or someone mentions that he's an anarchist, he's really more concerned about the direction rather than the goal. Um, like this is the direction that we need to go. And like, he recognizes he's not going to have the utopia he imagines right away. He's just trying to push people in the right direction and get over this hurdle of being out from, uh, you know, being under the thumb of the authority. And so, okay, he's done that. He's trying to help him set up a, some sort of structure that's as free as he possibly can be. And, you know, he's done his job. Um, but yeah, I, I like that he, I like that they made him have to get his hands dirty. I like that Heinlein made him not have to get his hands dirty a little bit. And like, look, you know, I'm making hard choices. Like I am, I'm either, you know, we're fighting someone who's, who's violating a lot of moral laws. I'm like, I need, I'm going to do this thing that I don't think is right because there's some, I hate to use the term greater good, but he's got some other purpose that he thinks is more wrong. Uh, if he doesn't do it, there'll be more, more bad things will happen. I'm not sure how I think about that, but I like that it's in the book because I because I like that it's messy and it kind of makes you think. I thought of that as like the the authorities, the Earthers, whatever they call them, are initiating force against the loony. So he's he's under this dilemma, like well, he's going to have to violate what he'd normally be, but it was initiated on him. So I you know I like that. I yeah, think did, I like the prediction future i kind of use things that you've said carter about that you know moving towards anarchy you're okay with libertarian you're okay with because you're moving in the right direction and that's kind of led out with the professor so maybe we should give him kudos for predicting the future he predicted carter he predicted deep fakes having the ai creating the the voice and the face and then the personality and you know imitating the director slash of mort the wart showing him eventually looking more senile and stuff so that if they eventually show up with a guy in a coma, they're not surprised because it looks like he's had strokes or something. Having nannies 
imitated to the point that he's talking to his co-husband who's working on the secret launcher and this the second husband doesn't know that he's talking to a fake he, yeah. he predicted the whole ai thing and it's remember what computers were doing in 1966 like this is before this is about when apollo 8 went to the moon right like the, the computer, and I'm an engineer, so I really like Heinlein. And I read all his books when I was a kid. I read that was page books. one, man. I mean, page one, he predicts the singularity, you know, the, <laughs> yes. the presence of computer intelligence. I mean, back in the day, that's mm -hmm. a strong prediction. I mean, the, be the best computers, like an example, the navigation computer on an Apollo capsule is less powerful than a key fob in your car now and has less memory. Like that's, the kind of, that's what computers are doing. And he thought of this which is like AI past where we are now. That's, I thought that was really precedent. Yeah, you can tell how far back it was just by e even the parts that he failed to predict. Like he still imagines computers to be these giant things. Um, and, 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 but he predicts very well what they'll be able to do. Um, yeah, I, I like that about him as well. Um, so I was, I, I'm sorry. Please. Oh, I had no idea what this book was about at all. So just went in blind completely. And uh, I was w sort of hoping it wouldn't happen, but I was waiting for the computer to turn on the loonies and somehow <laughs> betray them. Yes. And I really loved, uh, in a sad way, I loved the ending, you know, when the computer was silent and no one, there was nothing coming out of it. It was alive, but it was, it just went inside its own shell and it was kind of sad, but maybe that was the moment when it really became conscious, you know, of, of sacrifice and hurt or whatever it was that happened, you know, during the hardest uh, hit uh, to the computer itself. It made me think about a lot of things, you know, what, what was human about it and why it finally went silent. That really left me thinking. Um, I don't know what anybody else thinks about it, but I really noticed that part. I actually... Spoiler alert. Right. And the cat that uh -oh. walks through walls, another Heinlein book, they rescue Mike. Oh, okay. I got to oh. read that thing. Because I, I actually emailed Carter separately telling him, you know what? I really hope this computer doesn't in the end turn against these people because there's a program already in it by its creators to find people like this and string them along and then expose them. That's what I kept thinking was yeah. going to happen. And to, to your point about the ending, I was disappointed and maybe I need to reread it because I don't understand what happened to Mike. And it, it almost felt that, to me that's like- That's what's beautiful about it. It's, it's human nature. We don't fully understand what happens to us. Maybe that's the really human side of it. That's just my thought. <laughs> yeah, I don't mind not understanding, but I felt like I didn't have a hint to where at the end of the book, mm -hmm. it was like, oh, you know what? Mike's gone. He's kind of quiet. We're not sure why. Anyways, um, have a nice life. I was like, wait, wait, wait. I, <laughs> I felt the exact there. same way. Exactly the same. I was like, I never once thought he was going to turn on them. I didn't get that sense at all. I mean, I know that's like how the how, whatever, right. but I, I didn't pick anything up like that. But I was like, 
why I have absolutely no clue as to why. And it's such a relief to me to hear that in, a, in another story, they Mike comes back because I loved right. him. I so took that over Well, the way, the way Manny talked about him towards the end, I think it was talking through the computer. Like it was, it understood the, com he understood the computer and, you know, maybe not knowing exactly the reason why it went silent, but sort of understanding why it might have. It was, you know, Manny kind of let us know, maybe gave us some hints, but I was glad that it didn't turn because that, that would have been predictable. And I would don't like that about books and, you know, the predictable parts. And Alex, if I can jump in uh, just to something you said about, you know, the, the literature written today, uh, the focusing on the themes. I, I think it's even worse than that. A lot of writers just focus on the plot. Do I have a good plot? If I have a good plot, okay, that's, that's it. That's all I need. Um, and the, the more classic writers, they really understood the beauty of language and crafting a story just with words and, you know, those layers are missing for me in, in a lot of um, current literature. But I just, I just want to piggyback on, on what you were saying. I took um, from it that, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say. I, uh, I wanted... <laughs> we've got two, we've got, how about so Lindsay and then Manny? Yeah, I, I, I have, I have so many thoughts, but I want, I wrote this down because I wanted to come back to Alex again, the thing you said about themes. The, the question that came in my mind was, who reads books for themes? Nobody. So, um, and you know, you want the characters. And, and I started to think that is exactly what you're seeing is, is themes. And the reality is the themes are uncovered or discovered as you read, as you, you know, get to know the characters. Um, but that tied into the discussion about Mike at the end. Uh, for me, um, everyone um, has been talking about, I also thought that uh, he was going to turn on them, but for a little bit of a different reason. I the irony is this of this is that my thought of the overall theme of this is that I wrote it down um, no matter what system the people create or follow like that's put in place to protect them from the system the system will always become tyrannical like that was like how that was my personal thought so I actually thought that Mike being a system because there's some comparison between um, uh, Mike there's a lot of, let me see, uh, there's connection between like computer logic and revolution cells, which I thought was really interesting. So I was thinking Mike's gonna get new information based on his computer logic and then he'll become, he'll revolt against the new system. So that, that was what I I took from it that uh, Mike was the only real victim in the uh, story. He was uh, damaged in the uh, worst part of the uh, conflict and um, some of his logic uh, or some of, some of what made him unique was damaged and destroyed. Um, and as a narrative function, um, everyone else 
pretty much all of the main characters, they all come through it pretty well. No one dies. Um, there must be a sacrifice in every story. That's what I took from it. I thought that uh, that the author, uh, Heimlin, he was so visionary, like I think a lot of you have said, because this book was written in 1966, and he brings in AI. He talks about how he envisions the, the, the family relationships, and, you know, like they have this, like, polyamorous or polygamy, I don't know, the line marriages and uh, the language itself. I mean, he creates a world that he really thought about because he was really trying to portray that picture. That's why the language, in my opinion, is so it's so a little bit different than what we are used to because he was imagining what language would be like in the moon if there was a colony there for, I don't know, 200 years or whatever, not 200 years, 75 years or whatever, and how it's like a a mixture of people from many different places and then they create their own language. Uh, he also, the other thing that was very interesting was um, the, the sort of a parallel, I guess, and, and we I, somebody talked about it before, how it's almost like the moon was the new world. Like you're, you know, when, the, when America was founded, these people came over, they created their world and then they were under the oppression or the, under the, the the British Empire, they, the British mo uh, monarchy was was controlling everything and taking resources away. Everybody was from Europe, though. But anyways, now you get to a point where the people in the moon, hey, we want to be free, too. And so that's what happens. Right. And it's almost like if you think about it, looking back in the world, probably it's the story that always repeats at some point. If you're left to to be in your own little world where somebody is telling you what and how you have to operate, you're going to get to the point where you want to be able to decide for yourself. And, and I, think, uh, it was, I, I relate that to how farmers are treated today in America. Our, our yeah. rural communities are not well represented in our government and they're ta overtaxed basically from their property taxes. So like I could, that's what I kept thinking about is like, that is happening. Someone's telling them miles away how to live their lives, how to function. And they're like, you don't even know what my problems are. And so it's like, and it, is it always gonna be the farmers? <laughs> that's my question. You mean who rise up? <laughs> or who are being told how oh, yeah. to live their lives without any like context. Somebody's deciding for you and you don't have any self-control over, over that. Well, people who live in reality. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I, don't, I, th I think it is always the people who work with physical reality. Yep. And I think that's only because the authoritarians, the busybodies become manipulators of language. And so they're the ones who manipulate people. And so the the what you need to survive is actually manipulation of nature and so though the the leech class and I leech is a bad word because obviously sometimes there's good stuff people who manipulate language you know they write great books and that kind of stuff but the the people who make it their job to manipulate other people uh through language of course they're going to exploit the people that actually produce things because those are the actual productive people. Those are the people that they actually need. Manipulating other people who just speak doesn't help you. You've got to manipulate people who give you things like food and other natural <laughs> resources, right? Or build things or whatever it is. So 
So uh, one of the things, themes that went through through the early stages of the book was the difficulty they were having in getting the loonies pissed off enough because they were yes. all very busy just trying to make a living and survive, you know. Yeah, so, that, and that I resonated with today. That resonated with how I feel about most of America, right? Which is like, why aren't you angry enough? And they're like, well, we have Netflix and things aren't, you know, not that bad. That's yeah. what they had to create. They called it a Pearl Harbor event, right? And the professor says, well, we need to have, yeah. we need to encourage them or goad them into doing something that everyone will get pissed and then they'll fight. Yeah, I think that works on both sides because even though on Carter, I'll say our side, um, it's frustrating that people aren't frustrated. But I also hope that people are on the other side are, aren't frustrated enough to riot and do all the other kind of stuff that some people are doing because it's kind of like, well, you know what? Yeah, um, here's your revolutionary fist, but I too like Netflix, just like the other people on the other side. So <laughs> life, life in America is objectively pretty good for either side to be like, well, you know what? You know what? Let's just talk it out. And you are and bringing it to a head doesn't incur risks, right? In the book, right. they won, but at the beginning, they had what a one in seven chance was the prediction. So, uh, I guess in six other books, they lost. <laughs> Theoretically, <laughs> Edison uh, Heinlein's work that he does a very good explanation of his idea of. The average people can self-organize and create morality. Here you've got an outpost away from Earth, mostly populated by criminals with some people who are political exiles and undesirables, like China expanding and sending a bunch of Australians and Indians and Asians up to New Hong Kong. And you get a society that self-organizes with self-reinforcing rules because there's almost no actual law. And you've got chivalry, you've got trials. You know, not what we would formally do, but you know, you've got a de facto legal system, you've got marriages, you've got family, you've got business. And these are criminals and the descendants of criminals and they create a very civil society. Self-organizing, self-reinforcing. Yeah. He has a line in another one of his novels where he says an armed society is a polite society. And although no one's on the moon, um, it's very easy to suddenly be short of breath. So that's how come you've got people who aren't that easily riled unless they need to be. Yeah, you kept saying that like if you were a jerk, you essentially got shoved out an airlock relatively quickly. So you got to be nice. And then especially because there's only like, what, one in 10 people or women, you can't be a rapist or sexually assault a woman. Like it's always her choice. And that's why the polygamy existed in the first place. But, and like women had free reign to marry and divorce as they pleased essentially. And uh, that was kind of interesting to me because like when they go down to earth to talk to them, to people, they never mention that as like, a positive that the women could like had so much control over their lives, which I thought was kind of weird. Like you can decide whether or not a man touches you, that's up to you. And they never, and that's not the case on earth. And I thought that was weird that they never brought it up. Maybe because to them it was like, well, duh. <laughs> and you talk about yes, the too. instigating event 
the revolution getting Manny arrested for polygamy by a judge who's upset by how mixed race everybody in the photo was. And for the loonies, that's an instigator of going, excuse me, nearly everybody is in a group marriage or the most common was two men and one woman. If he's guilty of a crime, we all are. And the Mm -hmm. women were upset on that because they picked that system or that's how it organized. And they said, this is how all the guys get interested in politics because the women were going, oh my God, my marriage is illegal. Yeah, there is a lot of uh, one. I actually appreciate that he he took the time to think about what society would be and and propose an alternate set of uh, romantic and sexual mores that I think bothers a lot of people that read this book, Um, I I guess, understandably. But I, I love that he thought about like, okay, well, humans, I mean, there's a line, there's a couple lines in about adaptation in the book, like humans adapt. If these are the circumstances, what stable things fall out of those circumstances that, like, what ap- what adaptation do humans have? And like, uh, is that the way it would go if it was ten to one? I don't know, but it probably wouldn't be the same way it is now. And you, it's certainly a realistic, like, oh, I can see why if women are only one in ten at the beginning, they are in way more control and have way more power. <laughs> they're like, they're they're precious commodities they're not they're not as easy to find and so people have to treat them better um so like i i really appreciate that he did that because he didn't have to do that to write a he could have written a science fiction book about the moon revolting and not really thought about okay what do dynamics after several generations look like if there's a skew in uh the male female population uh, one direction, and if you've got, you've, and if you're in an environment that's extremely dangerous, right? You have to pay for air. I'm glad he brought that up too, because it's just like, oh, you pay, you literally pay for air. Um, it's it's this. There's always there there really is no such thing as a free lunch. Everything is paid for. Everything is something like. Uh, I I really I appreciate that he went to that much trouble to really flesh the world out uh, in a very rich way. Um, and, and I don't see, I don't see a lot of science fiction doing that. Like I, I, you know, I, Arthur C. Clarke is great. 2001 is, is interesting, but, and, and does some cool AI stuff, but in no way fleshes out relationships and how, like how society has evolved at all. Really. Um, I don't know. I, yeah, I, no, I, yeah. I agree with that. I'm just want to, the. Heinlein's he's a hard science fiction writer, I guess. And I'm a big science fiction fan. I think I've read all Heinlein's books, but I did it in like 1970, 72. Um, and I don't remember him. But but he, I don't think he wanted the, the line marriage as a theme. Like that wasn't a thing that he set out to do because he wanted to talk about that. It's more like he thought through what this world would be. And in that situation, it's a frontier. A lot of people are criminal. Most criminals are men. Um, their adventures, their farming and mining in a remote place, it's going to be 90% guys. Like that is what's going to happen. And so that just fell out. It's like his catapults thing. Like he realizes that we can't do this with rocket fuel. It just won't work. You got to use catapults. That's the only way this whole system will work. So I I really like that kind of, and you you see his engineer thing comes out and I'm an engineer too. So I like that. I like Heinlein. I I read all the Heinlein books and I read all the Asimov books and I went to David Brin. Like that's the kind of science fiction I like. It's believable. 
yeah, Arthur Clarke, 2001. I don't actually like that. And I love science fiction. It's just too close to fantasy for me. I like all the colloquialisms that he has. Like, uh, like someone earlier said, you know, an armed society is a polite society. He says, uh, towards the beginning, zero pressure was placed for good manners. You know, he, he just <laughs> yes. he just thinks through all those little sayings that people have, you know, and like, uh, well, you know, there's a lot of mishaps that could happen. If, and if someone wasn't nice, well, you could arrange for a mishap to happen. And so that, again, it's just very true to how human beings are in these like very intense environments. It felt like a, an evolutionary pressure for every element of the story. Um, you know, how many men there are, how many women, how that shakes out and how that becomes um, important so quickly. Um, uh. I think he also, he, he didn't mind like sort of uh, uh, talking about or addressing, bringing up in some small way, like these sort of differences between on average, like men and women and uh I like that he incorporated sort of the there's like a steel magnolias element going on in the beauty parlor and gossip and stuff being used for revolutionary purposes. And there's even this part where uh, uh, it was uh, uh, why wanted to work in the fields with the farmer, with the men, but they pushed her back into homemaking, not because she wasn't big and strong. She was big and strong, but because she was distracting to the male farmers. <laughs> I was like, that's kind of, and she was cool with it, right? Like, I don't, I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, just just reading some of that made me think again of how, um, you know, to Alex's point about a lot of writing that's happening today. I think people, people are overly cognizant of these sort of social justice rules and things that you can or can't do. And I think that, that, um, that really dampens creativity and genius, you know, like. So Carrie, one of the things that, that really struck me on this read through was the contrast between the, uh, the mores that were developed on the moon with the undesirables versus, versus the, we have mores that are just as well enforced today, this, this decade, uh, from the social justice side, right? With all, not, not fatal results, but career fatal results, if you violate those. <laughs> and personally, I like the, the set of standards that the criminals came up with. Yeah, they're much they're much more preferable to the, the civilized Earth standards. One of my other favorite parts is when <clears throat> the the people on earth are saying like well you have to pay taxes and he was like he just writes down well what are all the things you get from taxes and they like they have this whole list of all the things they get and he's like well we don't get this and we don't get this and we don't get this and we don't get this he's like goes down the list he's like well we don't get any of that so why should we pay anything? and we don't want any of it really <laughs> so um i i just uh i liked his yeah. um idea when he said that what you want to put in um, your constitution is what the government can't do, not what it is allowed to do. And, um, you know, our constitution was written by that saying the government can't take away your right to assemble. It can't take away your right to freedom of speech. And I've, I've heard 
you know, just in general, complaints from the left that there's too many things, there's not enough things in the Constitution saying what the government can do. And it's because they didn't want it to do a lot of things. Wasn't that one of the arguments, though, for uh, against the Bill of Rights was this idea that uh, the government is not supposed to do anything except for these few things and everything else it's not supposed to do. Um, and one of the arguments against including the Bill of Rights was, well, if we include these things that it can't do, people will assume that it can do other things. But it, it's not supposed to do other things. It's only supposed to do the things that we say it can do and nothing else. Uh, and of course, all that's been perverted. And now uh, well, that's why they have the line like any that. of the rights not afforded here are afforded to the people in the states. They right. literally put right. that in there specifically to account for that. And the fact right. that that's ignored right. is frustrating. That's that's <laughs> why a lot of people say the 10th Amendment is is the most important one. That's the one that says anything that's not listed is the states and the people. But yeah, Carter, the, the original arguments, the strongest arguments against the Bill of Rights is if they start listing rights, the number of rights are infinite. Like you can't list them all. So it's better not to list any. I right. use one like the Second Amendment as an example. People talk about repealing the Second Amendment. That doesn't do anything. It doesn't matter if you repeal the Second Amendment. It's just a reminder to them. Like there's still no right to regulate firearms granted in the Constitution. Well, this gets back to my argument, though, that if you change the dictionary, you get anything you want. So they just interpret words in the Constitution to mean, oh, well, this grants us the power to do. Blah, yeah, like blah, blah, blah. A, a judge literally said, what does keep mean about the right. Second Amendment? Literally asked that question. Yeah. Yeah, They say you can you can keep your Constitution. We just want your dictionary. Right. <laughs> One thing I thought was funny in here was they had the election for their Congress and the professor's like, we just need them to exist. And the plan for him was to give them the constitution. And this is the body that ratifies it to prove this is the collective, not just a small group of political radicals, but everybody wants the independence. And they do the election through Mike. And Manny suspects that there's lot, he doubts the counts in a lot of districts. And he brings up the point of it never occurred to anybody not to trust the computer. Boy, you want to talk about relevant today? Yeah. Well, I was getting nervous the whole book because they introduced Mike as he, he says he's like a combination of an unsophisticated baby and a wise old man. And he's brought yeah. into Mike because Mike is playing these practical jokes. And the whole book, I'm just getting so nervous. I'm like, Mike is going to do something terrible. I mean, that's kind of a trope anyway. But, you know, I started thinking about that today. It's like we have we have AI that's like way better than this. Like I, I follow all these bot accounts on Twitter. That there's, a, uh, there's a Nicolas Cage plot bot that creates these Nicolas Cage movies. It's, it's fantastic. And then there's the this person does not exist where it creates these faces of people that look photorealistic. And so, you know, and it's just kind of entertaining, but, you know, I don't depend on these AIs at all. And, and, but that's what gets me kind of nervous about modern society. It's like, how much, where are we going to start relying on AI way too much where we trust it more than we should, you know, cause that, that was the situation they were in. They're like, let's just put our entire organization on the shoulders of Mike. And, you know, surely he's not going to betray us. And I'm like, he's a practical joker. Like that's, literally how this starts yeah but zach 
but Zach, there was a part. So I wasn't like you and Sagita. I didn't think I didn't have that thought in the back of my head that Mike might betray them because when he was first introducing Mike to the professor and trying to allay his concerns, and he said, well, if Mike is disloyal to the warden, why wouldn't he be disloyal to you? And he said, it's a feeling. And he was like, basically trying to explain how do you put into words, it's not logical, but how do you put into words that like, this guy has my six, you know, this guy's loyal to me. It's a feeling, I can't really explain that, right? I thought yeah, that was that's kind of- why I was I was hoping that it would not go down that route, you know, where it would be a predictably kind of like, okay, Mike was have has his own agenda all along. We just didn't know it. So I'm glad it didn't happen. <laughs> uh Dangerosa Jones in the chat. I don't know if she can uh I don't know if she can speak on or not out loud, but on the, in the group chat that we can all see said um that's one of the great things about this book. It's a great buddy movie waiting to happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I the thing though is only the thing that I I would I was not expecting. I mean, I don't think the first time I read it, it was a while ago, so I don't I don't remember expecting Mike to turn on them. But the but the thing that gave me reassurance was that Mike, no one recognized. Manny was the only one that took the time to consider that Mike was alive and to treat him with respect and dignity. Um, so I, there was no, for me, there was no risk of like Mike suddenly deciding he has allegiance to the warden. Um, maybe Mike having his own agenda is something that could happen. But uh, I, I thought they laid it out at the, at the beginning pretty well that like, look, no one knows this guy. No one knows the computer exists. No one even thinks to look and interact with the computer. Um, and so really Manny is his only tie to the world. It's in fact, Manny is his only, like psychologically, Manny is the only person for a long time that gives him any psychological visibility as an entity. Um, cause no, nothing else in the world can validate that he's alive other than Manny. Um, so to me, I didn't actually, I, I never really felt like, oh, Mike's going to suddenly, you know, have some reason to go choose the warden. Um, but well, I like the trust part, you know, like any human could have his or her own agenda to, to, you know, to suddenly whatever, well, I had a different plan all along. Any human can do that to another human, but the level of trust and friendship that I really liked the, you know, the, the feeling as I think, as Carrie said, it's just, it's, it's a feeling it's hard to explain. I just know, I just know. It was interesting yeah. the, the 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 AI part of the story. I mean, like you say, the he he's come alive, and then Manny has uh, has is his first friend, and uh, they develop a relationship. But you could obviously tell that Heinlein was trying to say how he thought that AI was going to become infinitely more powerful in terms of knowledge and everything than you know us humans can be. And, uh, you know, and like some of you others, others of you have said, like the fear that maybe at, at the end, because he was the one who was controlling everything at the end, maybe like he's going to turn on us and he's going to get his way because he wants to uh, hear more jokes or whatever it is he wants. Right. He could have done that, but it didn't happen. But, you know, he obviously came alive somehow. So if you extrapolate to a future world over the over past to where the story ends you might think well if it happened once it's going to happen again 
some other computer is going to come alive too and going to start doing something like that. Maybe what happened is that Manny, not Manny, the, the Mike, in his infinite knowledge, discovered that instead of becoming tyrannical, he's like, I have to cut it off right here and I'm just going to shut down in terms of communicating back. Oh, that's great. That's a great thought. I didn't think about that. I really like that. That's great. That's, yeah, that's what I, I thought. Of. Well, maybe he didn't die. I mean, he was still working as computer. He was just not talking back. So I was thinking that, too, that he was deliberately taking himself out of okay. it because he he really didn't see that he was needed anymore at the time and thought, well, I'll just let the humans go and, you know, let let them do everything now for themselves. And this could be something, there was a lot of instances where the professor and Mike planned something without telling anyone else. And this yeah. is one of those things that I could imagine the professor and Mike having a conversation about, look, Mike, this is what needs to be done. Like you need to, you need to stop interacting at this point. Like after this, this is what needs to happen. And no one ever got to explain it to Manny because the professor died. Uh, and so Mike carried on with the plan and and we never really know that it, it was actually part of a strategy. I, I could see that. I like that idea. That's a good theory. I thought they left it up as a sequel. That's how I saw it. They left it open, and I didn't know there was one, but uh, Harry pointed out the cat who walks through walls is about that. I think I read that when I was 12. I don't remember. But I'm gonna is that the one with Dory? It. I don't remember. Uh, is that the, a different one? It, it is a sequel to the one with Dory. The one you're thinking of is The Number of the Beast with Dory, okay. but... The Cat Who Walks Through Walls comes after that. And it's uh, Maureen, Lazarus Long's mother. Oh, okay. So, and and yeah. how they manipulate things. So, uh, there's a lot of cool. Thanks for telling us. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of cool AI and, and I guess the right thing to say would be transhumanism in some, some Heinlein mm. books later. I've got a background in engineering and IT, and something that explains Mike's behavior is you're going to get an AI that's biased a certain way based on the data sets you use to train it. And then in the modern stuff, you then bring in human trainers to flag, you know, this is cancer, this is not cancer, this is hate speech, this is not hate speech. So you have a phase where there's humans giving feedback on yes, no, yes, no, acceptable, not acceptable further refining the AI algorithms so that you get the final system acting the way you want. In this regard, Manny is that trainer training the AI how to behave. And that is demonstrated by the fact that the AI can emulate him so well that his co-husband does not think he is talking to someone other than his co-husband well, in the I middle of the battle. I got to push back on something here and, and I've been going along with it because it's convenient, but Mike was not an AI. He was not created to be intelligent. He woke up naturally after he got over a certain number of interconnections. Nobody designed him to be intelligent. He's, That's a, he he was a, a natural point. intelligence. Yeah, and I, I think the term AI is really overloaded because what Tamara was just talking about is like we don't actually have any AI presently. There is no real AI. We have machine learning. When people talk about AI, they mean machine learning. Um, 
And like AI is kind of used very sloppily. I mean, maybe there's some in attempts at AI in universities, but like there's no, none of the stuff we're talking about is AI that's happening now. It's actually machine learning. And Wait, can you def can you just tell well, me out what's the is, difference is between trained, machine learning like and Tamara AI? Said right, like machine right. learning is training things, like Tamara said right, like this is a horse, this is a cat, this is a horse, this is a cat. Here's a million pictures of horses and cats. Now here's a picture. What is it? Right. We're like, getting machine learning and AI that's intended for the censorship bots on commenting sections on right. Facebook and social media. And then you go, oh, my God, it flagged a coconut is sexually explicit. We need to go back and retrain it. This right. is cancer. This is not. This is acceptable. This is not. So censor the communications, behave this way as a chat bot. And you've got lots of people interacting with it. Why does Manny think it has a conscience? He's been the main data set for training Mike and how to interact with people. And then his secondary people that he brought in interacting with the machine is Wyo and the professor. The professor is one of his teachers. So the reason he gets the idea that Mike is moral is he trained Mike what to think, what to do, what to feel, or you know, was that major corrective feedback in main development. And there's a lot of people who mistakenly go, can't we have government by AI? It'll be neutral and know what to do. No, it's going to have the biases of the liberal programmers demonstrated by big tech and the censorship AI, and it's going to reflect the will of those in power or else it's not even gonna be put in authority or if it really screws up, turned off. So a lot of people make the mistake of assuming AI is neutral, not recognizing you can have a bias baked into the algorithm at the very basic level that affects everything else it does. Now, Mike liking jokes did that with, I'm talking to people and then you hear the toilet flush and then Mr. Celine comes in. And so you had jokes that he was playing that he learned were funny that also made him look more human. So Mike still got some stuff in there, but he's following his program at the most basic level. Even when it's, you can't share this file without the password, let me tell you the password. Oh, and you wanna talk about way to do P-R-E-S-C-I-E-N-T, prescient, prescient of, I've password protected the files, but I haven't protected the passwords. Gee, that's a common security flaw in IT. And he predicted this before we really had much in terms of computers. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess I, I, I guess still... the thing I wanted to say though is like AI, when people think of AI, generally, colloquially, we think of the Terminator, we think of these like sentient computers that are making decisions that, that have some, basically some kind of free will that are self-aware and are making uh, kind of free will based decisions. And we don't even understand how the human brain works at all. There is no AI in that sense. There's no, there's nothing, we're not even close to anything like that at all. We're like nowhere near close to that. So the idea that like, yes, humans are trained through, similarly, by the way, we get information. Our parents say that's a cat and that's a dog or whatever. And we, we kind of learn, right? Um, so I think there's a parallel there. We can train computers to mimic things and to quote learn um how to behave in certain ways but um there is no uh there's nothing remotely close to the idea of like a computer that 
has its own desires, its own free will. It decides it wants to go learn something in particular. Um, I, I'm not right. an AI expert, but my my inclination would be to say that that's probably not achievable without uh, some of the inputs that humans have, specifically some of the chemical inputs that humans have, right? Um, so, right, so maybe we're throwing the term around too loosely, right? So I think that's a good. That's point. what I'm saying. You shouldn't be using yeah. AI. I just started using it. So what would be a what term would you use, Harry or Carter? I I uh, mean everyone uses AI now. I just use machine learning, but it's they're kind they are used. It, it one's a subset of the other. Other I just I just want to be careful that like we're not we're not dealing with consciousnesses. Like Google's not created like a. Google hasn't but, uh, created a Mycroft out there, like. I think yeah, for sure. yeah, I understand what you mean. Artificial so implies. What we use for Mike. Artificial okay. implies like a, a designer creating it versus something like non-organic, meaning, uh, essentially what it means. non like, I have something man-made, but not necessarily like bioinformatics is not necessarily like designed. <laughs> and that's essentially what we're right. thinking about. So, so I, I was going to go with a non-biological life form, but non-organic fits just as well. So yeah, yeah. But it is a life form. Intelligence. It is a life. It's a life well, form, whether it's biological or not. And then, if you look at it, maybe um, doesn't matter what its initial biases uh, were as inputs. It can transcend transcend those because it is self-aware. Oh right. yeah, that reminded me. Right. So Tamara was going I... on about how who the creator is of a program builds in its biases, and that is actually perfectly displayed through the jokes with when Yo and Manny both look at them and they disagree, and and yes. uh, some of it turns out that uh, Mike's sense of humor is more close to Yo's than it is to Manny's. <laughs> or he says yep. to Michelle. Yeah, I remember that part in the story. He's, she's talking to Mike, and she tells uh, Manny, "Hey, it's not Mike; it's Michelle." <laughs> right? It's almost like a, a reflection back of who the computer is talking to. And I thought that that transformation, um, where and that was almost something that was somewhat human, is where we tend to somewhat parrot what other people are doing when we're communicating with them. And then Mike doing that with Wyo and then becoming somebody new made me start to think about what happens if and when Mike or this uh, and anything like Mike would be released to the masses where every single person would have access to this artificial intelligence in this case um, and then have a different name, a different face, um, and imagine that they're actually talking to different people when it's all just one um, centralized um, intelligence. Maybe that's the new novel right there. You mean like Alexa? <laughs> yeah, like Alexa. <laughs> if Alexa would change her name and personality exactly. depending well, you, on each person. Alexa you, would then start to talk to me differently and maybe understand what I like in, a, in facial features and start to create a face that I would like. And kind of, what was that with River, with Phoenix? Not River Phoenix. 
Um, the movie Her, Her. someone just said yeah, in chat. Yeah, something I like know that. What you're talking about. Where it's, where it's, yeah, yeah, where it's all one, but everyone thinks they're talking to somebody else and they kind of um, <laughs> mold to what it is you need. It's like the so, thought we're so all living I'm, in the simulation. Yes. Yeah. But so on that point, I don't have an Alexa, but I just spent two weeks with my son and and they have an Alexa in there. And A, they have you can take and upload other skins for Alexa, like Sam Jackson. And B, Alexa interacts differently from my with my son than she does my daughter-in-law. It's and it's That's obvious. Freaky. Weird. Yes. Yeah, that's weird. Now, Mike, like someone in chat pointed this out. I mean, Mike passes the Turing test. And so that's, I think that's what, like, when I think of a, and if we're going to talk about an entity that's alive, it's got to pass the Turing test. And I guess a succinct way to say what I was saying before is we're not near having any sort of machine that can pass the Turing test at all. I wanted to jump in and ask anyone who hasn't, spoken yet if you wanted to speak no pressure but uh judge lot cheeky mayor nick uh luval is that how i say your name yuval yuval that's right yuval uh yeah. allison any if, if you guys want to put throw in your two cents feel free yeah um so i'm i've been kind of thinking well how should we think about mike in that case um if he maybe doesn't fit the bill of uh, an actual AI. Um, and uh, perhaps one way of thinking about him is almost like um, an extension of the people he's interacting with, almost like a version of transhumanism, but instead of having, a, you know, instead of Manny's arm, it's like an extension of his his brain or his capabilities in some way, his his social group. Um, so, yeah. It's, it, I like the analogy you're making between Manny with his arm and Mike with his human characteristics. Uh, there's a cool blurry line between those two somewhere. I also think that like, there's a lot we don't know about con like human consciousness. And so I think it's, it's kind of hard to define like, if a robot is sentient, if we can't, even, we don't even know, like, we don't know, really, um, we can kind of guess, but we, we don't. Um, no, we have no idea why, how our brain works. And I mean, so really. I think it's very, like, I, I love, like, I love that the, that Manny is, is Manny. And sometimes I think, he, does he call him man sometimes? Just man, yeah. my friend. Yeah. Man. So I think that's, I loved that. Cause I, I, I just noticed that all the time. Like, oh, they're playing with like, he's a robot, he's man. Um, and I also think that on, on top of that, the way that um, the short pigeon like language or whatever um, throughout the entire book, that's honestly, when I was reading this, I was like, sometimes I'm like, who's the robots and who are the like who, who who's mike and who are the humans like they all sound like mike if anything sounds more uh whatever uh intellectual or, or whatever um so the, that was interesting but yeah i think it's hard to define it's impossible to define uh when does a computer become like legitimately like alive if we can't even decide if like dolphins 
like are sentient or if we can't decide if we're se- like we don't even know how to define that in ourselves so i think that's like another concept that you could like look into more yeah like even know how to define consciousness really um i think people you know some people would define it as uh, if they're religious, you know, as having a soul and then other people, you know, I've, I've, I don't even know the, the minimum on what I should to, to even try to make the comment I'm about to make. So this is going to come out jumbled, (laughs) but I started reading about consciousness and it seemed like there's a lot of just debate and discussion on string theory and all this stuff that's way over my head in the scientific world. And um, it was hard for me to find even some sort of an agreed upon definition of what it, of what consciousness is. Well, uh, can I, my connection is really bad. So if this doesn't work, I'll, I'll do some stuff on text. But um, there is a lot of work now in um, emergence and um, Heinlein actually points to this, that, that um, Mike actually um, emerges when the connections get complicated enough or some something mysterious happens maybe it's the number of connections maybe it's the quality of the connections between his parts um there's also a lot of work in um evolutionary theory on um not so much well consciousness but also what's what they call individuality um so you have all these parts that are kind of doing their own thing but then they cohere into something and um there's a lot of there's a lot of work on it um some um simon deacon you should look him up he, he talks about um something surprising constraints that actually make um emergence happen but there's all kinds of other theories um anyway i just thought it was it was cool that um that mike actually emerges he wasn't designed as an ai and and the other the other thing um, that's so clever about the Turing test is that we don't have to define consciousness. It's it's a test that doesn't require um, someone to to say what consciousness is. Um, it just you just have to appear to be conscious, and there's a lot of factors to that. I guess intelligence is one of them, but there's other things like understanding jokes, maybe or. Um, things that may not be able, may not be definable, at least not at this point. Um, like, I don't know, just having compassion maybe could be one of them. Uh, how, do you, how do you define that? You know, it's kind of ineffable. Um, anyway, I, um, I really like the whole mic thing and, and I was, um, yeah, I was really taken with, with it. <laughs> so that's all I have to say about Mike. There was an article I read a couple of years ago. It's, it's from a neurologist, and he, and this is way outside of my field or anything, but he made an interesting point that um, it, it's like he, he could stimulate the part of the brain that moves someone's leg. And, and then he told the person, oh, you moved your leg. And the person said, no, you moved my leg. And so just in his whole point was that you know, the, the will is not simply like a neural impulse that causes a muscle to move, that there is a, like an immaterial will that exists beyond like the physical brain. And, and, and that like experiment demonstrated it so clearly to him. I, I was really fascinated. I'll see if I can find it, but um, that's the fascinating thing about humanity is like, where, where does this will 
an intellect come from if if it's not completely bound up by neurons like where is that <laughs> i mean i think it is i think they view it kind of like uh Yuval was saying like in, in this emergent property that like the you put these things together and there's this emergent property that that comes out i almost just to throw a wrench in this i almost don't know if it matters whether things are conscious or not because from a perspective of how i would treat an entity it would be is it is it capable of and i i would say it can it respect my <clears throat> rights and if it can then i ought to respect its rights and if it's not respecting my rights I don't care if it's consciously not respecting them or not. I I can initiate force against it. Like if it's going to not respect my rights, I don't need to respect its rights. And it doesn't matter whether it's a human or a dog or a uh, computer. Uh, I kind of don't care whether it's quote conscious. What I care about is how it behaves and how it relates with me. Um, and if it relates with me in a way that's honorable, then then fine. One of Do the very practical racist, right? One of, the, one of the things that like I keep going back to in this discussion, I love this discussion, um, taking it a step further from Will about consciousness and AI. So I, I think about Facebook or social media, YouTube, I think about the algorithms and how data doesn't equal consciousness as much as it wants to, even though it's people behind that making that. But so the two things that come to my mind is the heart is deceitful above all else. And uh, between what is said and not meant and what is meant and not said, all love is lost. So what I think about is when I think about uh, machines becoming aware, we ourselves don't always know what we want, what our true motives are, what motivates us. And the idea of, I think it goes beyond will. It's, it's this, it's, it's an awareness because we are, we ourselves don't always understand what, why, and what we do. And so you have a machine that's just taking data, but even what we're doing may not be what our true heart's desire is. So I find the whole, the whole uh, discussion really interesting because there's a part of me that's like, I don't know if you can learn that. I don't know if really understanding that aspect of humanity is possible. That's just my thought. Um, that reminds me of one of the quotes that I wrote down for this book. It's on page 11 in this copy. Um, <laughs> And it says, perhaps I note, and this is Manny talking about Mike. He says, perhaps I noticed his self-awareness almost as soon as he did. Self-awareness takes practice. And that remind that quote reminded me, I'm a I help with my youth group at school or at church. And some of these teenagers, I'm just like, come on, you can't you you can't say that sweeping ration, you know sweeping stereotype about someone you don't even know and you're you know you're talking to that group right now and you don't know like <laughs> I just it the self-awareness and self-reflection and I think that's a real um tragedy that not more people are self-aware 
even as adults. So to have a computer be self-aware, you know, yeah. self-awareness takes practice. So I like that idea that you say yeah. self-awareness takes, takes practice. And it reminds me, um, Carl Jung wrote something about that I, I really remember that had something to do with the moment a child becomes self-aware. And, and it reminded me of this idea that you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily born, you wake up and it's like, oh, wow, you know, you're, it's, and it's not even that you're not too developed to a point where you can speak, even beyond speaking, usually around seven, eight or so, there is a moment that most people have in their life when you look back on your memories where you start to realize that it's not just you, but it's you and you're surrounded by a world that you affect and it affects you. And after reading that, it reminded me of that specific memory that I had. Um, and I, I think that, and I like how you said that cheeky, the way I feel, I feel funny saying cheeky. I like how you said that because it reminds me of that and how Heinlein takes that real concept of not only becoming aware, but then having to continue to practice what it means to be aware as part of a maturation process. Yeah, I'm so, curious of everyone's thoughts on the Federated Nations. That reminded me of the United Nations a lot. And it seemed like they had control over the earth already. And they were the ones negotiating. It wasn't like, I know a couple individual countries are like, okay, yeah, don't, don't bomb us or don't. Uh, but it just seemed like the Federated Nations had already taken over and become like a world government. So, so in, uh, in this book, it wasn't as explicit, but in a lot of his books, the, his prediction was by the year 2000 that we would have a world government. So it points out a lot of the, the, the problems with that because there's, there's certain ideologies that outnumber us by a lot. <laughs> so it's a constant, a constant fight to keep, uh, I don't want to say liberalism because it's become a bad word, but Western freedoms in place yeah you know uh there's a I, i'm gonna just there's some interesting chat stuff going on so maybe we can just pull some of that out so alex you were you were saying in chat that um hey i don't you know i think i think i've carter me has said in the past like oh we need to get people more angry and and you're saying well anger actually wasn't that helpful like the prof and manny and why weren't angry um, and I would argue that, uh, I don't think anger is helpful for planning things and for being rational, but they recognized that they needed the masses to be angry or they would not win. Uh, they spent years on agitprop trying to get people upset because they were too complacent. So I would argue that anger was actually needed in order for them to have any chance of winning. Um, I think so, a balance your of it, counter though. to that? I think a balance of it, though, because they still needed the people to work. And of course, it's new, of course. And, and like do the things they were supposed to do. And the problem is like if you get people too addicted to anger, they can't do anything but rage. We've seen that they go on social media and they just scream their heads off and maybe crash their cars. So it's like, it, it can be useful, but in doses, like it can't be like your everything. 
And I, and, and yeah. certainly the people at the top can't be like addicted to anger. And, yeah, but and, I don't think I was making that argument. No, all. no, so. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't mean that. I mean, no, but like <sighs> more like that. Not not to say that you were wrong, but to say that a balance is needed between anger and rational thinking. <laughs> yeah, I would actually. I just I think, argue that anger can be a motivator, um, and to the extent that it motivates you to take the actions that that are the rational action actions and do the things that. Are needed that's great to the extent that it motivates you to stew in your own crap and do stupid things it's destructive just like almost any emotion right love can be a great motivator and it can also be horribly distracting and not actually helpful um so i kind of view well all there's as- also a line in the book <clears throat> there's I'm- a line in the book where it says the professor sets them straight and says told them it's easier to get people to hate than to get them to love. This is after the part where they're talking about um, not being able to inspire patriotism really in people. And, or if they did have patriotism, they had it for whatever country they had come from. Um, And and I just underlined that because I was thinking about how that seems to be true, at least the way it it bears out in in our elections. It, I, I can't remember I mean, it, was there ever a time where the campaign focused on what you should love about this candidate instead of on what you should hate about the other one? Most of them seem to be run based on this is what to hate about the other guy. And I think that's so been I true for a while about too, that. Right? And like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I don't know. And, and the fascinating thing about that is sociology, says, the, the theory of reactance says that negative campaigning is actually counterproductive but people do it so it it must be working yeah (laughs) i think the opposite Um, that negative camp negative ads really work very well well if if you if you uh, i have no um data for that so 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 there there's a youtuber aiden paladin who takes in looks at current events and what kind of sociology uh, studies say about those current events, and she can take and, and she points out a bunch of react uh, of articles on on reactants and and how negative campaigning takes in, in response. Now, one of the th- things that the studies find out is that if you already have a hardened opinion on somebody, right, you're, it's not going to take and change your mind. But, but like negative ads on Trump, get Trump supporters out in force. It, it, okay. it, 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 it works the opposite then. Yeah, that, that's what, what they, they call they, reactants. Yeah. I see. So. One of the things I saw was interesting in this book in terms of how the revolution was done was that it was like a group of, a small group of elites that was really pushing this and setting it up and was behind everything. And then later when they um, are setting up a government, they make sure that all their people are elected in it which I thought was interesting. But I, I've been reading this other book that was um, talking about the Russian Revolution. And this is true, the American Revolution, true, too, that um, it was a bunch of um, 
you know, elites who were communists. They were in academia. When they were exiled to Siberia, they formed groups in Siberia that were eventually came back to help with the revolution. And in the United States, when you look at who's writing the constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they're well-educated people um, who have a bunch of different influences, particularly ancient Greece and Rome. And they are only a third of the population. So it was, they were a third. And then the other people who um, didn't want to revolt from England were another third. And there were another third that don't care. So just as an example, I grew up in a very small town in New York state. And it was part of the estate of uh, the Livingston family. The head, the Robert Livingston, who saw, I think he's one of the signers of the constitution. He was pro leaving England, but all his small farmers on his estate were not. So it's kind of interesting that these revolutions are, are pushed by some kind of an elite. And the theme is there in the book too. Yeah, I think he even says at some point, you know, we don't need the masses, right? Which is, uh, which is interesting, kind of challenges some of my assumptions about revolution. Yeah. yeah, I read some things that Mancusa says that it's the elite that has to like wake the masses up and get them going. So eventually. So Heinlein had no trust in the masses. In fact, I, I believe, I'm pretty sure it's a Heinlein quote from one of his books, I can't remember which one, that you can take and tell the intelligence of the committee by taking the, 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 highest, the smartest person in it and divide his intelligence by the number of people in the committee, and that would be the effective <laughs> intelligence of the committee. Wow. <laughs> That's a great rule. Probably true. And if you, if you doubt it, just look at Congress. Yeah, he clearly had no respect for uh, government bureaucracy and, and Congress. Can you repeat what you just said? I'm sorry, I, I didn't hear it. So to, to figure out the effective intelligence of a committee, you pick the, the intelligence of the smartest member on the committee, and you divide it by the number of people on the committee. Okay, thanks. And the, the other thing he says, that if a, if a committee accomplishes anything it's because of one or two people that take and manage to take and do something despite the rest of the people on the committee yeah i love his cynical view of the the whole government when he sets it up he's like oh just just let them all talk and the more they talk the less they'll get done and i'm like i think a lot of people have that view of our government right now that the best thing they can do is just waste time debating so they just stay out of the way and uh, you, I thought that was entirely true. Zach, I don't know how long you've been watching Unsafe Space, but I'm going to out Carter. He said this on air before. Carter doesn't really vote usually because he's an anarchist. He did vote for <laughs> Trump, but he said previously, isn't this right, Carter? You said you used to vote for whatever party you liked or whatever party was I voted in the for minority. Deadlock. He voted yeah. for deadlock. So they would just yeah. be talking and not get nothing done. I was like, yeah. what are you 
doing? Because nothing <laughs> is better than anything they ever do. So I, I, think I was harder on that article at one point. He should I, be I called Prof from that. now on. <laughs> so I, I am I am with Carter on that. If we had a Democratic Senate in Congress, I voted for a Republican president. If, if we had Republican Senate in Congress, I voted for a Democrat because right. limiting their ability to do anything has much higher priority than anything government tries to accomplish. Yeah, the worst thing you can have is one of the parties think they have a mandate and the end of votes to do something. Then they'll start doing stuff and they never do anything good. You have so. to understand this is flipping the way that I've thought about government for so long. That's why I still am having trouble grasping it, but I do have a really healthy appreciation for it. It's a joke that's funny more than once. I I've thought the same <laughs> thing for, for decades. Yeah, Always funny. More than once funny. <laughs> that was brilliant, Carrie. The, the, well the, ap the absolute <laughs> optimum Congress is 50-50, Democrat or... And the worst is what Carter said, one party has majority. It doesn't matter which one. It's the same thing. But I, I think the problem now, though, is we have a permanent bureaucracy and the way the Congress passes laws, they do it in such a way to make them so vague that the bureaucracy can interpret them any way they like. And so they don't even, we don't even really need Congress. We're run by the bureaucracy. Yeah, and that's inevitable, right? Because, you know, we don't we've gotten away from the. I mean, ancient Rome, what they they put their laws on the on the tablets in town square because they thought that everyone needed to be able to read all the laws and understand what they can get away with. I mean, now uh, now we've there's no one person that knows all the laws. Uh, if you include the regulations, there's no way like they, no one could possibly even read them in their lifetime. And so we're, there's an entire bureaucracy that decides what's legal and illegal for us to do. And you can't so just because you get elected to senate doesn't mean you can make sense of any of this you rely on you rely on bureaucrats you're like well this is what you should do and you should do that and you should repeal this thing and this article over here matters and strike this line here and like they have no idea how all this fits together they can't and that's why you end up with a load of stupid laws where uh, they ban drugs and make various stupid things illegal <laughs> right right that even comes up in the book where they're Manning and the professor are talking to this committee and they think they're talking to the heads of the planetary Congress and they're getting nowhere of, we want our independence. They said, no, we're doing what's best for earth. You're a dependency of earth. You have to do what we say. And you've gone through two days or three days of arguments and they find out you're not talking to the heads of the Congress. You're talking to the heads of the committee that are in charge of Luna. So you're going through this level of bureaucracy and you don't even know you keep, it's like when you try to, the EPA gives you a stupid ruling contrary to local zoning stuff. And they tell you, appeal it to the EPA admin judge that is going to defer to what his EPA bosses said. And you really don't have an outside process to go around that. One of the things that I loved I don't know if you guys remember this part. Uh, basically, where it was, there was a long, long section about uh, part of the book talking about the government structure. But I loved it. Actually, made me laugh. Where they were talking about, I'll summarize. It was kind of like, oh, like you know, you petition for who you want to 
be in charge of you. And then, and then they're your responsibility. Like whoever petitions for you, like, and they're like, and it's kind of like, Oh, Whoa, wait a second. And then this, and then there's a shortly after that, obviously taxes have a big role, but then when they're like, who's going to pay for stuff and they're like, Hey, you're in, that's, you know, that's your thing. You figure that out. And I just thought it was really interesting because it brought it back to the, in, the importance of the individual in government in that, you know, being a public servant or taking on that responsibility. I think it's so easy talking about bureaucracy to get into that position and be like, okay. But I liked this idea of like petitioning and whoever votes for you. And this was my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong. Whoever votes for you, like you're, you're, you're in charge of them. Like you take care of them. Not only that, like you pay for it. And then I feel like it's like, oh, whoa, 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 okay. You know, so I, I felt like that was a really interesting uh, way for government. I don't know what anybody else's thoughts were, were on that. I, I, lo- <laughs> I love those kind of like outside the box thoughts about government structure. And I, I, I agree with you. I think the interesting thing that the, I, so the, the petitioning thing was, was interesting. I think what the idea was if you get, I think it was 4,000 votes, then you get a seat. And, but all the people that voted for you, like you're now representing people who voted for you. Like you're like, those are the people you represent. There's no one in your area. Like you're not representing anyone who didn't vote for you. You're, you're only representing those people who voted for you. Um, and I, I, can you imagine, I just want to throw this out. Can you imagine having your tax form just have little check boxes on it? That was like, I'd like to pay for this. I don't want to pay for this. I like to pay for this. I don't want to pay for this. Like literally you only paid for what you wanted. Uh, I think it might change voting pretty dramatically. Yeah, that would be awesome. Like I say, would you uncheck wars, foreign wars? Nah, right. No wars. I'll pay one. for some defense. Uh, throws, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. That section is you bring out. He throws out so many ideas. Like I listened to that one twice on Audible. Like he talks about, well, maybe one idea is maybe Congress, when they pass a law, they have to pay for it out of their own money. Like that's a good idea. I love that. And then he, exactly. but he lists the different things government does. I want to do one more example that I love that like Carter brought up the, uh, he says all these things taxes pay for. Well, we don't want that. We don't want that. We don't want that. And like one of them is like, well, how about police and courts? Like, well, we don't want that. We don't have that. We don't need that. And then the next shortly after that, he brings up an example, which is great, where the, the earther comes on to the girl. So they have to have a court. And he goes through this whole long thing. Like, here's how police work. Here's how courts work. Like, you don't need any of that by the government. And you have to pay everybody. And then they negotiate. And if the guy loses, they throw him out an airlock. <laughs> I, I thought when they're forming laws that he says something so profound where he's uh it, it's when he's back on earth and he's you know he's being confronted by being in a, a polyamorous relationship which okay, I, i'm not really in support of that but he makes a very interesting point inside of that by saying there must be a yearning deep in the human heart to stop other people from doing as they please rules laws always for other fellow murky part of us, something we had before. Uh, not one of those people said, please pass this so that I won't be able to stop doing something I know I should stop. Man, I thought that is so true that, that so much of what we argue about in the political sphere is what we want to control other people f- from doing. It's not about self-control, and you know, which I would, I would say that's the realm of religion, really. It, it's, it's more about uh, 
changing things in your life. But this is exactly true what political debate about. It's like, I, I don't want them to, to own that or to use that or to be able to enjoy that or, or whatever. And how you reconcile that, I don't exactly know, but that was very profound on a fundamental level. So I like the suggestion that, that he put in there to have two houses, one that passes laws, the other one whose only function is to repeal them. And it would take two thirds vote to pass a law and only one third vote to repeal it. So, and, and he made a good point. If a third of your citizens <laughs> think this law is too onerous to live with, you should get rid of it. Yeah, there's been other like things. The, uh, where, where was the, the place where you had to read the laws out loud? Like any new law had to be read at normal speed, like out loud uh, in order to get passed. And I think there's also been proposals for any new, any like, for every word of new law added, you have to subtract one. Like there's there's some things that you could do where it was like, look, this is the set of laws. This is as long as it can be. So uh, you really feel like you need to add something? Well, you're gonna have to delete something else. Um, it reminded me of Trump. Wasn't it Trump that was saying for every regulation that we add, we're gonna get rid of two? And I think you said five, right? Didn't you oh, really need to do something? Yeah, it was wow. five. Five? Wow, okay. <laughs> and he did. Yeah, yeah. He did. I mean, you don't hear about it in the press or anything, but he did. He followed up on that. It's interesting. I wanted to point out, so I kind of going back to the masses versus elite type thing. Um, I thought there was something really insightful in this book and it's, it's, on, um, it's on page 69 in my copy. So um, it's talking about like, okay, revolution is a science. Only if you are competent to practice, blah, blah, blah done clumsily or prematurely and the result is civil war mob violence purges terror and i just think that's happening right now like like i don't know if you want to look at it from an angle of like sjw ideology and, and the colleges spreading everything and and inciting rage and, and whatever i don't know what exactly there, there could be a lot of different ways of reading that because I think there's just a lot going on right now but i think that's like whatever is happening right now like someone who's trying to control things is not doing it properly because there there's mobs there's civil unrest there's uh there's a lot of tension right now um which maybe that's a good sign that that not that those things are good but that um we're we're gonna come out of this like i don't know like like maybe maybe there's a something to that like if if there's so much um I don't know how I want to say this. Like there's, there's things seem to not be going according to plan. Cause if you wanted to completely take things over and um, make like uh, have that be successful, like you wouldn't have people doing it badly and butchering things. Like I think like, okay, like a concrete example of this would be like, people are really starting to wake up to uh, critical race theory and things like that, where it's like, this is, if the, if, if it had been executed properly, people would have successfully been all been brainwashed simultaneously or whatever and, and nothing ever like that would be the new reality but there's enough people that have butchered it and now people are like that's not cool we can't have this so i think that kind of thing is happening like i think we're in in that reality right now so, so i think you're right allison but i would like to point out that what even proves Highland's case even more is think about if they had pushed this stuff 10 years ago 
I mean, you think you have a lot of reaction now? I, I believe we have, we, if, if, uh, if they had pushed it 10 years ago, it wouldn't have just been the Proud Boys out in the street. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So now they maybe did, they jumped it off a little early, but. I don't think there's, I don't think there's a, an orchestrated revolution in that sense happening though, right? I don't think there is, there's not like an SJW equivalent of Mike and Manny and Prof and Y that are doing anything. It's just, this is kind of how societies decay um, when well, you have bad ideas. Well, I think it's, I think it is a, uh, I think it's, I think it's to her point, to Allison's point, it's maybe because it's not properly organized. And I do, um, I do agree with you though, Harry, that I think if it had, if they had popped it off 10 years ago, more people would have woken up, you know, and that 10 years was very critical in pushing some of these ideas slowly into the mainstream and getting you to accept some of the stuff, uh, uh, you know, and not, not all at once. Right. Um, but, but I do think maybe you could look at it and say, yeah, it's a revolution that's not organized. And maybe that will lead to its downfall because I would say it's, uh, uh, I'm looking at that line that you read, Allison, done clumsily or prematurely. Yeah, it, it kind of sped up in June and July of this year, really prematurely, I think. I hope. Well, but he doesn't say it's unsuccessful in the end because it's right. Clumsily. It just leads to some violence on the way. It's like bloody. Plenty of revolutions that have been done clumsily, immaturely, led to a lot of blood and still the Marxists got their way at the end of the day. Like, damn. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Didn't the Marxists set this up to subtly take over society? Like it wasn't supposed to be a big revolution like they had in Russia. I thought it was more like we'll take control. We'll have our intellectuals that came into the U.S. in the 50s or 60s or whenever it was. And then they slowly propagated this. And so now it's, you know, um, elementary school teachers are learning this and teaching it to the kids. So, you know, it's. So I, I know, think it's the phrase over. you're looking for, Ben, is the long march through the institutions. Yeah, Ben, like Yuri Bezmanov talked about, that's what you're describing, the slow um, conquering of a civilization through ideology. Uh, it's just how bad ideas propagate. Bad ideas are like a cancer. They're cancer memes. And like when you let them spread, especially when you let them metastasize into education, this is what happens. And part of it is the fact that on a like cursory glance, it looks good. Like, oh, you're like, oh yeah, people, sometimes there's problems and people, things are unbalanced and we gotta fix that. And you're like, oh yeah, we gotta care about our fellow man. Like that's in there. Yes, socialism is only sharing. Yeah, so it it looks pretty like like out of focus, but the closer you get to it, the worse it is. And and then you're like, oh wait a minute, this isn't what I thought I was talking about. Like even over this last year, I learned more about what the SJWs really wanted, and like they, I, I know just new discourses talk talks about what's your breaking point on following it. And for me, it was the anti-interracial relationships. So like, 
that, you know, like you have a point like where you learn so much where it's like, whoa, and your brain breaks and you go, okay, no, this isn't pretty. This isn't nice. This is awful. And I made a mistake. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that's why I still have a little bit of hope because I think like, yes, like we could, we don't know the ending to our story. Like we don't know what, how things are going to go in our society, but I do think that like there's been um, because it is clumsy, I think that there's been enough people that like myself included, like that's why I'm here right now. Like it, where I was like, that's a breaking point for me. I can't, I can't tolerate this anymore. And I can't go along with it because I'm seeing the true root. So I, I, I am hopeful that we're not, you know, that there's enough people like that, but I'm also very fearful because it's, yeah, it's now, I think like Ben said, it's, it's now being, it's in, it's in the elementary schools and it's, it's, touted around is a good thing and that terrifies me so yeah I don't know I'm 50 50. I wanted I to think... go ahead oh I, I think at some point you know so much of what's being driven through our culture is the root of it is just a terrible cynicism you know when when uh international adoptions were were you know fell under the acts of um know criticism and that that for me that was a breaking point i i have so many friends that have had international adoptions and so and in international interracial you know, adoptions so when that started to be you know criticized like openly and, and it didn't fit the, the paradigm of what people were uh trying to push politically that that's where i was like you know i, I can't go along with any of that now uh, and that, you know, I, that's where I absolutely draw the line because children need a home, you know? And so are you going to uh, cling to some ideology is your highest good or the highest good of, of children that just need a family? But when you, but, you know, do people really believe that, that like that adoption is, is furthering some kind of injustice? Well, no, because I mean, adoption is obviously solving an injustice. So I, I, I also, so I just wonder if people that say those kind of things actually believe them or if it's just their cynicism kind of driving the car down the road. And then you start to unpack, well, pretty much everything else they're saying is just cynical. And, and it's just a really terrible view of reality. So yeah, I view it more as like not maybe some people if it's cynicism but for me it's more like you get social points you get clout if you if you go along if you say yeah we're doing this diversity training now at our company or we're or just little tiny gestures that you do to your that you show to your friends to prove that you're woke like that I have so many friends that are deeply in the woke mentality and I don't think they understand where it's headed yet because I didn't I was the same way and so I I yeah that's just, that's, I think another angle. I think it's, 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 there's a social element that's, and that, that's another thing that just terrifies me. It's same as the schools. It's like, if it's a social thing, you're not going to, then now there's, it's kind of in a bubble where it's like, you're not really thinking about it as much because it's trendy now. And, and you're not thinking about the true ramifications. So you're either operating out of fear or like almost like this sort of ego side sort of thing to, to appear popular or to be, yeah, virtue signaling basically. It's well, and I think that's like what the, the Christians mean by not being a Christian. I'll, I'll try. I'm not speaking for Christians, but like, I think that's what the Christians mean by like this society being spiritually bankrupt, right? 
and I would say it's philosophically bankrupt, but it doesn't it doesn't matter. There's a there's a bankruptcy with respect to um, whether you want to call it philosophy or spirit um, of just it's we've we've decayed into a sort of nihilistic hedonism, and so they're virtue signaling because it's practical to virtue signal, not because they have any virtues. Um, <laughs> so, uh, in fact, virtue is kind of a not a real word. It's not a word that's used. Like no one actually cares about having actual virtues. They care about the practical advantages they can get about sig you know, with respect to signaling cer certain virtues or feeling good about themselves by signaling certain virtues or whatever it is. But there's not there's not any substance there. Um, I uh, kind of to mention. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, my pastor gave a great sermon today about truth what's true versus what's real real meaning sort of uh i guess you could take it to mean in this case like what's immediate and you know these social this this social religion this thing this is immediate it's real you can feel the consequences immediately if you don't speak it if you don't pile on in the threads if you don't you know show that like you're talking about allison that you're a member of the woke and he was sort of talking about how it's human humans human nature to choose what is real over what's true uh i know I'm, it's confusing and i'm probably i'm whatever i'm taking it out of context but you're making me think about the difference between the way he was defining real as in something that we uh can grasp easily versus truth and pursuing truth is much scarier and it may truth may not be so obvious and popular um, but, uh, speaking of spiritual bankruptcy, Carter, <laughs> I wanted to take it to, uh, what, something, something Lindsay was saying earlier about the themes and how, uh, you know, and what Alex was talking about, about how a lot of it, in her classes, they were taught, they were teaching you to just write to theme primarily, um, you know, and then Lindsay was saying, but, you know, theme is a part of, it is, it is a part of it. And then she mentioned the theme for her, I'm going to paraphrase Lindsay, but you were saying the theme for this book for you was that all systems eventually might become tyrannical. So I want to see what other themes people took from it, because one of the themes I took from it, which I think is an uplifting theme is on page 79, when they're giving, I like that these three characters come together or th four, if you include Mike, they come together in the cause of revolution, but they all have different reasons and different ways that they they um, kind of uh, different paths to get there. And I really liked Wyo's reasoning or her, her, she says that she's approaching it differently because this is after Manny said he's not gonna participate in a revolution unless he has at least one in 10, one in 10 odds. <laughs> so for him, it's about numbers, right? That's you, Carter, maybe. Um, <laughs> I don't know, but Wyo says revolution is an art that I pursue rather than a goal that I expect to achieve, nor is this a source of dismay because a lost cause can be as spiritually satisfying as a victory. I thought that was really was, beautiful. Was that Wyo or was that Press? Pre, pre, that that was Wyo, right? yeah. Okay. yeah. It sounds like something prophets say. Oh. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, so, and then he, you know, Manny says, well, not me, you know, sorry. It's not a, it's not a thing of art for him. It's not a spiritual satisfaction, you know, for him, even if he, he, he needs to think he has a shot of winning. 
So yeah, uh, I, I by the way, Carrie, I'm going to push back. I would say okay. I probably side with Wyo more on that. Than oh, interesting. Manny. It's okay, worth cool. pushing back regardless of the odds. <laughs> uh it's just you just have to be careful how you push back uh so you know you don't do dumb things but yeah i agree with that it's always worth it because it's your own integrity and your principles that's right and if you're not fighting for that then you're not really yourself you're not alive you're not you yeah so yeah so now i'm not like a literary guy but one of the themes i noticed in this book was at the beginning of the book, Manny was like a like a dad to Mike. And by the end of the book, Mike was being more like a dad towards Manny. So the growth in their relationship and the and, and reversal of that relationship seems to be a fairly common theme. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard people talk about that. I do not have children, but I've heard people have children talk about how their children raised them in a way, I think meaning caused them to grow necessarily so. In terms of themes, I'm just gonna pick on Beverly who's in chat, but she sent this to me on Discord. Um, and I don't know if she meant it for, for it to be a theme, but it could be um, one of her favorite lines is society adapts to facts or dies. Um, I think that's, I, that could definitely be one of the themes. Um, if I was to step back and look at the book, it's like, well, you know, people have to, like things have to change. You, you adapt to new circumstances or eventually there's, eventually, eventually things fall apart um, and people die. So uh, I don't know, throwing that out as a possibility. I'm not sure. Shortly after the um, Carrie's discussion, Carrie was talking about the discussion of uh, everyone's reasons. It was shortly after that, <clears throat> something I noted. Um, I don't know that it really <clears throat> um, has anything to do with theme as much as um, there was a section talking about the importance of genius. And this, like this part really touched me. Um, and it goes to some of the stuff we've been talking about um, just in our, in our current, you know, current social situation, but um, the importance of um, this revolution to fight for innovation and for genius in a way it said like the way I read it, that the genius and innovation was the only way that you, this is just my summarization of it. Genius and innovation and creativity freedom for that is the only way to truly be free and um so i guess it is kind of you could see it as a theme but that part really stood out for me i don't know if it, it did for anyone else yeah mike said he can't account for genius <laughs> I, I think that's the part you're talking about when he's doing all the calculations yeah yeah like he can, it's like i can factor all of this in but like I can't factor for success unless the, like, I can't, unless this piece exists. And, and that is, and that is uh, completely independent of any system. And um, I, I just thought that was really, it made me think a lot about what that is. And even going back to our discussion about uh, AI and data and just tying it in that, that um, spontaneous, 
you know, and bringing it to what's going on in, in our current, you know, the current atmosphere. Um, you know, I saw an article, I don't know if anybody saw this about um, the Dalton school demands to change just, or like the attack on um, uh, uh, gift and talented Terry, you, you posted that. Mm-hmm. And I honestly, I'd, I'd read that and it made me think about how, you know, is that, is that, if you had to point to one thing, is, is that the thing, you know, I don't know. That's oh, you mean the one thing that wakes you up? I think it, yeah, that could be a breaking point for some people. I, if, if you guys haven't seen it in the past couple of days, there's been some very explicit attacks on um, gifted and talented programs at schools on AP classes and on very explicitly saying they want to eliminate these things. It's interesting to me that the the same people that claim that their 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 socialism or Marxism or or whatever is driven by some sort of love for humanity um, never really stop to consider how they hamstring the the geniuses in humanity. Like the you, you know they're always talking about how well we have to worry about these people over here that need help and these people and we have to do these things so that these people that need help get help. Um, but the the cost that is never factored in is that kind of very difficult to measure um, effect that this has on people who would be massively productive and massively contribute uh, in like a almost in like a step function way to humanity, right? In a way that 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 Mike couldn't account for because Mike could only do incremental changes. He could only predict in- incremental changes, right? And it, it, a genius comes along and there's some breakthrough and it massively changes things. And when you do not let people, uh, when you do not allow people to be free, when you prevent them from the freedom to interact uh, and do what they want in, in, in exchange voluntarily, you end up quashing the likelihood that you get that breakthrough, that genius to come along. Um, so, well, Carter, uh, yeah. central planners have to. They have to yes. squash genius. They have to squash innovation because otherwise they get their five-year plans while going together and some genius comes along and invents the cotton gin and it takes it and throws, <laughs> throws all their plans out of the way. There, there's no way to take and do central planning and allow innovation at that magnitude at the same time. And you the have to have that innovation. And the and the, the, and the, the central that, planners. Then, is, the, sorry, sorry, I was just going to say the Go answer to that is flatten every every uh, tire on your car, so mm-hmm. it's it's equal for everybody. There's no geniuses, and uh, the car goes nowhere. And then you right. go nowhere. <laughs> right, right, and and that the central planners imagine this is the thing with central planning is because the the human relations are so complex and society is so complex that it's actually impossible to centrally plan it optimally. It's just impossible. Um, but central planners, they, they often have this view of things kind of like, uh, kind of like a, a, a cheap and incompetent version of Mike where they have, they can, uh, they think things are going to be the same and they can kind of try and predict incremental improvements, but they can never, they can never wrap their head around what, uh, disruptive changes may happen and when they may happen. And so 
any disruptive change, as you're saying, is like just upsets the apple cart in a major way for them. So they kind of they view they think that they can just uh, plan stuff out and everything will remain the same forever and they'll just kind of tweak it and optimize it. But everything will just be the same forever. Um, and they can't account that's for not genius. How progress works. Yeah. But at the same and, time, yeah. they want their own situations to improve, not necessarily anyone else <laughs> because they're selfish. <laughs> Let's face it. They want they part of the five year plan for them is that they, things get better for them. Yeah, they get a promotion because their five year plan worked. I just wanted to well, read is... from the chat because I don't know if she can speak. Uh, I don't know if her audio works. Dangerosa Jones says part of the premise of the book is that Manny is setting the historical record straight. So I guess the overarching theme for me is, do you really know what's going on? Because Manny does probably know, but the rest of the masses absolutely do not. And the people reading the histories certainly do not. That's a great but, point. Yeah. Man, Dangerous has got dangerous. some insights. Yeah, yeah. Carter, what you're saying about central planners and trying to keep everything the same, you know, that that's where we're headed now with this overemphasis on equality. And, and certainly equality is right. a virtue, but we have other virtues in our country, such as liberty and justice, you know, justice is for equality all. a virtue. How is equality a virtue? Well, all men are created equal. So just no, they're you know, not. That's just not true. Well, the only way in which how, equality is a virtue yeah. is through is through equal treatment under the law. Then it's a virtue. Sure. But equality as such is thrown around as this thing that we're supposed to praise. And equality is horrific. Equality is just not true. It's unreal. No two people are born the same in the same circumstances with the same genes and same skill set and same opportunities. It just doesn't. Ha it's not true. Well, that's why you so, have to defer, define terms, though, because I think he was talking about equality under the law. But but everyone, but right. people don't. Equal but people rights. use that. People use the word equality and good people, probably like Zach, are thinking to themselves, equality under the law. Uh, but people don't hear, that's not what people hear. Uh, they say, well, these, these two people have an unequal circumstance, therefore that's not, that's not equality. And like, well, that's not what Zach's talking about. Uh, so I think we just need to be very careful when we talk about equality being a virtue. Equality is not a virtue. Uh, equality is not even real. It's not a thing. It does, people aren't but equal. But equality under the law is real. Well, yes. it should be. <laughs> yes. Well, e equal, you know, I, I think about people being equal in dignity, uh, equal in value, um, equal in worth. They're not and, equal in and, dignity, and though. Right? And they're not what? equal in value. Oh, yes, they are. No, they're they, not. They may not act equal. <laughs> Because there's no, because there's no objective standard for value. Like people Define are valued. value. Well, yeah, value. Right. It's like yeah. value for what purpose? Like I'm a, I have, a, I'm of no value on the basketball court. Other people are much higher value on the basketball court than I am. Like we're not of equal value depending on the goal and the use, yeah. right? And some people actually aren't of equal dignity. Like there are horrible serial killer, pedophile, child killer rapist people that I would say do not qualify as equal in dignity as far as I'm concerned to to other people like people aren't even equal in those respects and I don't know why there's such a fear to admit that humans are unequal it, we've been brainwashed to think that anything we say where like humans are unequal is somehow some horrible sin it's just not it's not a sin it's just reality I, you don't even have to go to serial killers I know a lot of normal people that are just a waste of air 
Okay. Wait, first of all, we hijacked Zach's comment because we got, you got honed in on that word equal, Carter. I would like to hear the rest of Zach's thought. That's fair. That's fair. I I got distracted. I went on a tangent. I'll shut up. Yeah. Well, so just minor tangent to answer the tangent. I, you know, I can only answer this from a Christian perspective is that people have uh, the image of God. So they're equal in value that way, but also people are fallen. So they are equal in being sinners. And of course, some people sin more than others. Some people live better lives than others. But, you know, I, I can only say that people are equal in terms of their inherent value, not in terms of their worth of society, because I just I don't I don't think in utilitarian terms. But my, my main point, though, is that liberty, equality and justice are values that all have to be upheld. And I think we're in this cultural moment where equality is held up as the top value or perhaps the only value. And that has to be in tension with these other values because, you know, let, let's, let's go the other direction. If liberty is the only value, well, then why shouldn't I own a, you know, a howitzer tank or an A-bomb or just be able to do whatever I want, however it destroys other people? You know, you, you can go to extremes in any direction, but the, the balance of society is holding all of these together. And so, you know, it, when, when I hear people just saying these words, equality or even liberty, or even justice, and that's the only, that's like the only note they're playing on an instrument, like all of these notes have to be played together. And so that, that's where I think, uh, you know, this kind of revolutionary moment we're in is going to hit a brick wall, because you can't just have one theme or one value that you're chasing after. Oh, I, I agree, Zach. But the main problem with that is, we got what, 15 participants on right now at one point we were up to 20 and of 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 those 15 participants on right now i don't think we could all sit down and hammer out an agreement on what the definitions of of equality liberty and judge and justice are probably so. true Plus, I think we would need to take the IQ of the smartest person and divide it by 15 to figure out how effective we're going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe drop so, a few people off chat. <laughs> I, I just, I just want to, I'm not going to argue about the, the value stuff too, too much. I just want to, I'm going to make one point and I'm going to encourage people to think about it. Uh, uh, whenever I hear the word value, I always add to whom for what. There is no objective inherent value to things. It doesn't exist. So the question is value to whom for what? It's a, a conscious being values. Valuing is an action taken by a conscious being. So to talk about an inherent value, gold isn't inherently valuable. There's nothing inherently valuable. If things are valuable to people for purposes, and that's all of my thinking can be understood. You know, all my arguments around this and around freedom and all this like liberty, all that can be understood starting with this idea that like there aren't these absolute things. There's not a metaphysical, the universe doesn't value people. I think um, that's where, I think I'm not the only one who'll disagree with you uh, about this because I think that people do have an objective value because God values them. God loves people and values people, and that is an objective value. Right, that's the it's difference like between you the You are not going to agree with Christian. that because right. you're yeah. an atheist, yeah. yeah. I think that <laughs> might be where that disagreement stems, is a, is a belief in 
is a is a belief in a, a deity or not or specifically a difference in a belief like a christian worldview versus an atheist worldview so yeah, like I, that's, I think that's yeah. fair to say I, I i think it's fair to say carter that if there's not a god then, then who do we ultimately value or who, who do we ultimately matter to like who ultimately puts value on us i i guess that is harder to answer and, and i'm not trying to tricky or anything but I, I see your point that you're making no no i get it and actually i would say if you do believe in a god you can use what i just said and just say yeah well the valuer is the deity that i believe right. in, sure. and this is the purpose sure. i'm like okay yeah i think that's very honest to put it that way i just think like from my perspective like as someone who used to be religious and now i'm quasi spiritual i don't even know but i i will to my dying day think that christianity is one of the best attempts at creating um you know let's say that it was a man-made religion let's just take that premise for a sec that's a beautiful way of trying to get societies and mass to value human life um and i like i think it's absolutely beautiful in that way and and so um i think that i have yet to be shown an example of an atheist society that doesn't crumble not that christianity has had a perfect track record or any religion has had a perfect track record but i just think that maybe it's going back to the consciousness that you're talking about earlier like if you don't believe that humans have a soul or a spirit or or self-awareness or whatever like the society just goes south like you just stop um i don't know there's something deep in our psychology i think that we need we need that assumption because if you go too far down the like the, like like I think that's why it's important to say like like yeah we're we're made in the image of God or or, or something we're, but we're some there's something about like my my take on that is more like there's patterns in the entire universe that are eerily similar and like humans might have that too and I don't know there's just something like magical for lack of a better term about that. And I think if you take all the magic out of it and you structure a society where no, there's nothing special, there's nothing magical, there's nothing mysterious about anything. It's just it's just this cold, dark world. That's when you get genocide. That's when you get, I mean, the end extreme of that is is genocide and things like that. So so that's sort of like my soapbox so for that topic. I'm also, also an atheist, but I don't agree with Carter. Um, okay, cool. And I didn't grow up religious either. I grew up in an irreligious home. So for me, um, there there's billions of people in the world. So on a on a large scale, uh, that means one human doesn't matter that much, like from that perspective. However, when we die, nothing happens to us, and our whole existence is subjective. We can only ever experience our own life, and it's limited. And that has value to us as individuals. So of course, everyone's individual pain and happiness matters. And you have to, to do them. to to them. Exactly. Right. But I would agree and, with you. But I, with it doesn't empathy, matter existentially. It matters to me. My life matters to me and yes, to people but that love me. If you can <laughs> reconcile that in your brain that everyone feels that way, then you should also value them because you if you're an empathetic human being you can understand that they feel the same way i do well i i would agree with you i think you can i can say that most i would think actually 
I don't think people value themselves equally. There are certainly self-hating people who don't value themselves, and there are certainly people we all know who value themselves too much. So, like, I, I <laughs> but, but I, I do think I, I, I will say, like, yes, I understand that everyone has that feeling, but um, that's not a that doesn't make that doesn't make the feeling like that doesn't mean people value. I can I people are valued objectively. That's not an, it's still a subjective thing they they have a value to whom to themselves for what for whatever purpose they you know purpose of their lives i don't need to have i don't need to to think that they have some sort of objective value in order to treat them well uh, i just need to have a set of morals derived from uh human right basically natural law and human rights and individual rights i need to have a set of morals about how to treat another conscious entity that can uh that can understand rights so like i don't I don't need to have some kind of like you have value thing. I just, I just need to know that I need to treat them well, right? Does that does that make sense? I don't need an objective value. Um, one of the things uh, that that I'm thinking about in terms of the book in this conversation is, um, I don't know if you guys saw it this way, but I don't remember there there was never a development of a new religion or any kind of attempt to control through religion. But one of the things they referenced a lot was they would describe a uh, a country or a group of people, and they would kind of say, "Oh, they either they they find val uh, life sacred or life isn't sacred," and so they described it in terms of in that way, instead of really sort of a system of religion, which I found really interesting. And Allison, some of the things that you were talking about just really made me uh, think a lot. Because I, I, this gets a little, this is a much more nuanced conversation, but <clears throat> I tend to think of religion as a, a system of control. I don't say this out loud a lot, but, um, but I believe like you say something like um, Jesus, the historical Jesus and, and what Jesus actually teaches. Um, I feel, I see like the established, the establishment or institution of religion as the theory of equality. Whereas I find something like uh, Jesus, it could even be, um, doesn't have to be Jesus, but I see Jesus as a, a path towards self-awareness and it's not necessarily about um, seeing everyone as equal as much as it is. I think it's less when we talk about value and equality, the only thing that I keep going back to is like the more self-aware I am, the better I can treat other people. So it's kind of a layered thought process based on what everybody has said, but um, yeah, just, just tying it back to the book as far as how they reference sacred, whether life is sacred or not. And that just made me think of all this stuff. <laughs> should we, should we wrap it up and get any last thoughts on the book? Cause I think we could go down a rabbit hole here on like, this has been really interesting. Yeah. Fun, but yeah. <laughs> uh, so I know a couple people already had to take off. Thomas had to take off. I think Tamara. Uh, if anybody wants to share final thoughts, anybody who hasn't gotten to speak a lot want to speak? I'm not sure if. I'm not sure if. Um, can you hear me? I don't know. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't. Not sure if this is a theme or not. But um, what my favorite quote 
I haven't finished the book yet, so thanks for the spoilers. But um, my favorite quote so far has been, um, and this is uh, Wyo and the prop uh, talking. Um, Dear lady, I'll happily accept your rules, but you don't seem to want any rules. True, but I will accept any rules that you feel necessary for your freedom. I am free no matter what rules surround me. If I find them tolerable, I tolerate them. If I find them too obnoxious, I break them. I am free because I know that I alone am morally responsible for everything I do. So that's the theme, like every highlight that I have in the 12 or so chapters that I've read has been something similar to that. It's like, I'm in charge, it's my life my body, my choice, whatever, you know? So, um, I don't know. That was, Oh, I, I agree. Cheeky. It's a, at least for prof, that's a, a theme all the way through the book. Every, everything he does, even things he finds distasteful, he takes responsibility for what he does. Yep. It, his, his point is never that somebody forced him to do something everything he did he he does of his own will and he's responsible for so. i think that's a perfect point to end on because i love i love that theme. i think it's great um yeah carrie anything you want to say before we we head out no i just wanted to see what give one more opportunity for any final thoughts from folks i feel like i talked a lot anything okay I really enjoyed having so many people here today. Um, and uh, this was a great book, Carter. I appreciate you picking it. We are gonna be doing, the next book is gonna be nonfiction. We're doing Cynical Theories by James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose. And uh, I, I'm, I'm excited about this one too, because I know a lot of people had already bought it and we're gonna read it anyway. So this is good timing. And we're doing it in Jan uh, January, something. We'll put it on. Hold on, I'll, I'll look. Hold, let me see if I can find it. <laughs> It'll be on know, the book club like page. That. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can find it on the book club page. Carter will put it here. I'll there. go into. Okay. Uh, I'll go in and look, and I'll see where it is. Okay, I'll give you an, an answer right now. It is uh, on January twenty fourth. Zach at, and my, Matt noon. Yep. Yeah. So we'll see you there. And if you guys have book suggestions, you can always drop them to us in the chat or in the comments. Or what's a final thought somebody's had? Hey, now this is off topic. It's not about the it's not about the book. But I had a hard time actually finding the link to get to the email to let you know I wanted to participate. It's not on the book club page. I finally found it on your Facebook page. Oh, Harry, thank you. You mean to figure out how to email us to get it and everything? Right. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. We'll make that more clear that if anybody's watching this, we, we are live. If anybody's watching this and you want to participate in the next one, the way that you get the link is by emailing us at speak at unsafespace.com. And then Carter puts those links together very close to the date and sends them out. Actually, you know what? Kudos to Beverly this time because, uh, Beverly she did, did it. it for me this time. Yes. Cool. But, Thanks uh, Beverly. Yeah. So thank you all for watching. I really appreciate it. Um, have a good uh, weekend. We will see you on Monday for coffee break. Later.
Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Any association with these individuals will be considered an act of willful sedition. Here's a fun fact, Santa Claus may be a myth, but the Federal Reserve is real. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Did you know that medical experimentation on humans can be justified using Hegelian ethics? Computer voice, Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.